Welcome, fellas and dudettes, to another episode of the Fellows of Phoenix podcast, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Bourget, and yes, in case you were wondering, dudettes is in fact the female version of fella. Um, Google told me so and everything. I had to look that up because we want to give a shout out to everyone that's listening to this podcast, fellas and dudettes alike. It's not uh, not just the fellas of Phoenix. We got to give love to the dudettes as well. So a um, lot to cover in today's show. Really up and down week for the Suns. They followed up what was easily their worst performance of the season in Detroit with a really great bounce back performance uh, against the Pacers on the road, second night of a back-to-back. Mikhail Bridges, of course, was the big story. He had a career-high 34 points, shot 12 of 18 from the field, made six of his eight threes. It was uh, the first 30-point game of his career, actually. Um, so that was really nice to see, and it was a very good bounce-back win that uh, Devin Booker really contributed to, and we'll talk a lot about him in a minute. He's kind of the meat of episode three today, but a lot of interesting stuff that we've seen over the last few days from the Suns who may struggle with bigger front courts. That's one thing that we're seeing early on, Uh, you know, the Pistons with their size with Jeremy Grant, Mason Plumlee, um, they really stuck it to the Suns smaller front court because they really just have Aiton and their only true backup big Behind him, it's either Frank Kaminsky or Damian Jones. And, uh, you know, the Aitons Sharich lineups have not gone very well so far. But uh, that's something to keep an eye on as we continue. The Suns, you know, handled themselves really well against another big front court with the Pacers, DeMontis Sabonis and Miles Turner. But uh, they did a lot of interesting things to kind of combat that. Coming up this week for the Suns, they finish out their road trip in Washington, which is kind of a scary game because the Wizards, every team that they've played, uh, their opponents have had someone come down with, you know, either have coronavirus or have to be held out due to health and safety protocols and contact tracing. The NBA is not in a good place with this right now, so... Fingers crossed that doesn't extend to the Suns. They've already got Jalen Smith dealing with health and safety protocols, so they don't need another case like that going on. But uh, we'll see. So they've got the Wizards on Monday, and then they've got a three-game homestand against the Hawks, the Warriors, and the Pacers, with the Warriors and Pacers being uh, Friday, Saturday, back-to-back. So we'll see what happens. But uh, our first segment today, we've got to give a shout-out to Langston Galloway, who... I mean, that was one of the most fun performances from a bench player that we've seen this season, which is saying a lot because the Suns bench has been incredible. But uh, he got his revenge game against his old team in Detroit. He had 17 points in just nine first half minutes. He was five of six from three in that game. He only played three second half minutes, which was kind of odd. That was not Monty's best game as far as rotations are concerned. And, And it didn't help that the Suns totally went cold from three in that second half. So he didn't get the win against his old team. And that was probably disappointing, but this was a guy that had only played six, seven, four, and five minutes in the four games leading up to Detroit. Um, And he had been, you know, he had been kind of on the outside of the rotation, despite the fact that we all know he can get that three point shot off in half a second. And he had been getting shots up after games and uh, heading into the Detroit game. He had something interesting to say when he was asked about it. No, the biggest thing for me is uh, just, just trying to stay ready. I think that uh, 
right now with with the with everybody really playing well right now and just trying to get into the rotation, I think that my biggest thing is just trying to take it day by day, continue to do my work, uh, be prepared whenever my number is called, and then uh, and then at nighttime I'm just trying to get a lot of mates, uh, making sure everything's feeling good. I'm, I'm staying confident, staying motivated on what I need to work on, and uh, and continue to add to my game. Um, never never satisfied, so. I might come in there and make 500 threes after the game or 502. It just just working on specific things uh, while I'm out there and, and just locking in and, and really uh, just simulating the game in my, in my mind. Do you feel good after last night's work? Yeah, yeah, now I'm ready to go. So, hey, when coach called my number, I'll be ready. So that's just kind of a testament to Langston Galloway staying ready. Like, he was prepared for this Pistons game. Obviously, he had that extra motivation of playing against his old team, and he didn't get that many. He didn't play as well in the next game against the Pacers. But, you know, the the ability to stay prepared is huge for a team that's as deep as the Suns, especially in a season where we might see guys struggle with injuries or, you know, COVID protocols. Guys might be held out. It's really great that he's got that mentality of staying locked in, staying prepared, um, so we had to give him a shout out today because he had not been getting very minutes, very many minutes heading into that Detroit game. And, you know, that was what we saw was not surprising after hearing him say that because he has been putting in the work so that he can be ready for when his number is called. Uh, we've also got to talk about the Sun starters because they're still not meshing and it's only been 10 games. So it's not a point of concern yet, but it is something to keep an eye on. And we brought this up, I think last episode as well, but the sun's most used lineup by far is their starting five, which they've played 167 minutes together over 10 games. Their second most used lineup is only at 20 minutes just for a point of reference. So this is the lineup that Monty has deployed a lot, and it's because he doesn't believe in platoon rotations. He'll rotate guys in one at a time off the bench. Um, so that's the reason why we've seen so many different lineups uh, from the Sun so far this season. But, you know, if you're going with a starting five lineup for that much and it's going to be a consistent theme this season, you would like to see better returns than the negative 6.9 net rating they're posting in that stretch. Um, and for our more casual listeners, net rating basically refers to how much you outscore your opponent or are outscored by your opponent per 100 possessions, which is just kind of an even qualifier that takes into account pace. Um, so per 100 possessions, the Suns offensive rating is 108.7 and their defensive rating is 115.7 with that group. So they're getting outscored. Their defensive rating is much better overall, and so is their offensive rating. But that starting group is just not quite meshing the way that we thought it would. And you can kind of see it play out over the course of these games so far. You know, in the first quarter, which is a predominantly starter-run quarter, the Suns are a minus 16 overall this season. They've been outscored by 16 points. And then you go to the second quarter, which is a predominantly bench-run group, and they're a plus 64. And it seems like this is a becoming a common theme is that the starters get off to an okay start or maybe they're down or maybe they're up by a couple points. And then the bench comes in and either turns a small deficit into a lead or they turn a small lead into a bigger lead. And this is what happens in, happened in the Pistons game 
the bench, it was very clear night and day which group was, was responsible for the Suns' success in that game and which group was the reason that the, that the Pistons clawed their way back from 23 down in that game. Um, and you keep going in the third quarter when the bench guys get minutes so that the starters are, are rested for the home stretch in the fourth quarter, the Suns are a plus 36. And then in the fourth quarter, they're a minus 17. So you kind of see that rise and fall that's pretty tied in with when the starters are playing and when the bench group is playing. And that's both a testament to how good the bench has been and how much the starters are still trying to find their way implementing two new prominent pieces in, in Chris Paul and, and Jay Crowder. Um, but yeah, the Suns are the starters are a plus eight per NBA.com and the bench is a league best plus 54. Uh, the next best bench just for reference is a plus 26. So the Suns bench has been absolutely incredible this season, which is great, but the starters, they're, they're still trying to find their way. And a lot of it is that kind of your turn, my turn thing that's going on with Devin Booker and Chris Paul still trying to figure out when they should be passing, when they should be deferring, when they should be, you know, taking matters into their own hands. When you have two players like that, that are used to taking matters into their own hands, that's natural. Um, the lineups that were staggering CP three and Booker in the Indiana game, those seem to be pretty successful when Monty was staggering their playing time a little bit more, which is something the Houston Rockets did a lot with James Harden and Chris Paul and, and found great success with that. So that might be something to look into. Um, and it's worth noting that the lineups with Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges have been a lot more successful than the lineups with Jay Crowder and Mikhail Bridges. So that's something to keep an eye on. It's not that Crowder has been bad. Um, it's just that Cam Johnson has been really good and for whatever reason, he and Mikhail mesh a lot better than they have with Jay in Cam Johnson's spot. So, you know, the Pistons game, for example, that was the second time in the last five games where every Sun starter was a minus in the plus minus column and every bench player was a positive. That's kind of a weird trend and it's not something you see very often either. You know, you might see it in losses, but and the Pistons game was a loss, but that was the case in a win a couple of games before that as well. Um, and the easy fix might be moving Cam into the starting five for Crowder, but he's been so good off the bench. And, and I think it'll take more losses like the Pistons one where it's abundantly clear the starters just aren't getting it done. This group just doesn't isn't getting it done. I think it'll take a lot more losses in cases like that for Monty to make a change because that bench unit is phenomenal and there's just too much talent and skill and, and basketball IQ in this starting group for them to not figure it out at some point in time for right now. There's still, it, it feels like at times they're trying not to step on each other's toes, but I think as it goes along, that'll get better. Um, so for now, a more complex fix might be staggering CP three and book a little bit more. Um, you know, they did that against Indiana because campaign was out. So they kind of had to, um, it's, I'm not sure how that works with a healthy campaign because you don't want to infringe on those campaign Javon Carter minutes when they just terrorize opposing opposing backcourts off the bench. But, um, you know, small tweaks here and there, and hopefully just building that chemistry will help the sun starting lineup get to where it needs to be. And related to that, we need to talk about Devin Booker's start because there's been a lot of talk about Devin Booker regressing and how, 
you know, he's finally got help around him. Why isn't he being more dominant and that kind of thing? Um, and I think the bubble spoiled us a little bit and watching him toil away without much help over the last few years has gotten us accustomed to this different Devin Booker than the one that we're seeing, but he hasn't been bad. He just, you know, the numbers aren't really there for him. He's, he's averaging 22 points a game, uh, just under five assists. He's shooting 48% from the field, just under 35% from three. The free throw percentage is down, really down because it's been a couple games and he got off to a rough start. Um, and all of those numbers are, are down from what we're used to for him, especially last season and in the bubble. Um, and the reason is his role has changed a little bit this season. Um, Dom Tesoriero, Tesori, sorry about that. Dom didn't mean to butcher your name. Um, he posted a tweet about this, you know, breaking down Booker's role a little bit with percentages. Um, he's been taking a lot more spot up so far this season, which is great. We want to get Devin Booker as many easy looks as possible. But there's also been a lot more ISOs. Um, it's a career high percentage wise for him. He's getting fewer looks in transition, uh, which is a career low for him. Lowest usage, usage percentage since his second season. Lowest touches per 36 since his rookie year. His post-ups are down. His general involvement in the offense is just kind of down um, as this feeling out process continues, which obviously, you know, you, you hope that's a temporary thing and not something that's permanent. Um, but the good news, which we saw in the Pacers game, is that Book is still fully capable of taking over games down the stretch. Um, you know, he came into that game, the score was 98-96, and then it was 100-96 to with about eight minutes left. Suns were up four. And at that point, he scored or assisted on the Suns' next 15 points during that 15-4 to run that basically put the game away. And he was dominant during that stretch. It, it didn't feel like it, maybe. Um, it was one of those things where you kind of had to go back and, and watch it again because Mikhail Bridges was in the middle of his career night and, you know, the Suns were playing a very good team. So it was back and forth and DeMontis Sabonis was having a big game. But if you go back and watch that 15 to four stretch over the last, you know, eight minutes or so of the game um, or a couple minutes, you know, at the eight minute mark, you know, he has that steal on the inbounds pass from the Pacers and the dunk like where he just picks the ball up, rises up and throws it down without a dribble, which was impressive enough. So that puts the Suns up six. Then he has an assist to Mikael Bridges on a drive. It, it was kind of a generous assist because Mikael took the ball from the top of the key and drove to the lane. But, um, you know, his ball fake to a rolling DeAndre Ayton out of the pick and roll on that play is what brought Mikael's defender into the lane and gave him the advantage because Mikael's defender was closing out in a hurry when Bridges caught the ball. And at that point he had the step on him and was able to get to the rim. So even something as small as that, that pump fake on the pass to Aiton that draws in the help defense helps freeze things up for Bridges. So that's why we're fine with Booker getting credited for an assist there because he helped make that happen. Um, then on the next possession, Booker gets a switch on Doug McDermott. He, he gets the uh, calls for the pick and roll with Cam Johnson, gets a switch on McDermott. Totally blows by him and really tough layup finish over Miles Turner, who is the league's leading shot blocker. Um, honestly, that bucket should have been an and one really beautiful finish that he had over the top there. Um, and then the next possession Booker assists on a, a Mikel corner three where he froze the defense with a midair pass to the corner. Um, then he had a pocket pass to Aiton out of the pick and roll for a dunk. Just, you know probing the defense, manipulating the defense with a perfect bounce pass to Aiton, who had the wide open dunk. And then he had a floater 
um, just toying with DeMontis Sabonis in an isolation one-on-one. Just drove right past him, got the easy look in the lane that he wanted for a floater. And that was the 15-4 to run. That was the run that changed the game and put it out of reach and helped the Suns beat a very good Pacers team on the second night of a back-to-back. Um, he also had two defensive rebounds in that stretch, including one that was a really excellent box out on Miles Turner. He got matched up with the seven footer, boxed him out, secured the rebound, and then he wound up, I think, scoring on that next possession. So Booker still makes winning plays. Nobody should get confused about, you know, maybe Booker's not as good now, or maybe he and CP3 aren't going to work that well. Like they're still figuring things out. Booker is still, he's still getting a lot of attention on defense and opponents will adjust now that they see how much the Suns are shooting the lights out. And that'll be the time when Booker is probably able to put up big numbers again when he's not facing double teams all the time. So, you know, you want the three point shooting to come up. Obviously you want the free throw shooting to improve. But um, the interesting thing about that Pacers game though is that most of that 15 to 4 run happened with just Booker on the floor. It was point Booker and Chris Paul was not on the floor for most of that. Um lineups with Devin Booker and Chris Paul actually have a minus 7.1 net rating. And again, part of that is because the Sun starters haven't been uh great in that respect so far. Um but something to keep an eye on, you know, Paul has assisted Booker on 12 baskets through the first 10 games. And through the first 10 games last season, Rubio had assisted Booker on 15 of those. Um, And Booker has only assisted Paul three times. And Book was at seven assists to Ricky Rubio last season through 10 games. So their chemistry has not been as immediate as what Booker had with Rubio. And that's okay because Chris Paul is a totally different player um, and a much more dominant offensive player who can get his own shots um, better than Rubio can. But that is something that they're going to need to figure out, that ebb and flow of who's taking over when. And and part of it, honestly, Chris Paul needs to start shooting threes off of catch-and-shoot looks because he's gotten a lot of those. And sometimes he just pump fakes and dribbles and tries to turn a great shot into an even better shot. Just take the great shot. He's, he's, uh, he's not taking those threes as much as he should be to this point. And that's an easy tweak that would help make the offense run a little bit more efficiently um, instead of just kind of overthinking it. So, um, you know, the good news is they're feeling that process out. Some nights it'll be Chris Paul taking over like in Denver. Uh, Some nights it'll be book like in Indiana. So that is one thing to keep an eye on, but we should move on to a new segment that we're going to start doing called the quote of the week. And with this quote of the week, you know, doing these media availability sessions almost every day, we hear a lot of good stuff from the Suns players, from Monty. um, And some of it, you know, we can't tweet it all out. Some of it goes under the radar. So I want to start including more clips in here just to, you know, things that stand out to me, things that should stand out to you, encouraging signs, worrisome things, whatever it might be. But uh, this week, we've got to go with Chris Paul talking about Mikael Bridges. Performance tonight. I have one of the best feelings. Um, been around a lot of guys in this league over the years, and he one of the best guys I think I've ever been around. So to see him do well and to see his game blossoming the way it is, um, it's nice because he he deserves it. Yeah, aside from Kale, like taking, you know, pretty much the toughest defensive assignment night in and night out, um, he can hoop. He's nice, but then he's uh, – 
He's slick, man. You gotta watch him. You gotta watch him. He real slick with his tongue, real, but a, a fun guy, like a very fun guy to be around. And um, he just got a great spirit around him. I mean, about him, a great spirit about him. He works, he puts the work in. So, um, you know, he's one of those guys that when I kick it to him and, uh, you know, he, hit, he hits a shot, like I, I feel like I made it. I love hearing Chris Paul talk about Mikael Bridges in that way because, you know, he's not he's not just saying that Mikael Bridges is a talented player. You want these guys to be cool with each other and to get along with each other off the court because that can only improve your chemistry on the court. So to hear Chris Paul say that Mikael Bridges is such a fun guy to be around, um, you love to hear that. And you hear teammates talking about how cool their teammates are all the time. But, you know, that kind of stuff seems genuine. You saw it after... I think the Suns account tweeted it out, the video of them, you know, dousing him with the ice bucket and Mikael being asked about it and saying, you know, like when DeAndre Ayton gets his 25-25 game or if Jay Crowder hits 10 threes, you best believe I'm going to get him back. Just like stuff like that, um, you're, you're glad to see it because you want teams that have a high playoff ceiling to also have that chemistry and to get along and to be able to talk about things that aren't going well. If you have that relationship, it definitely helps in that regard. And it's really cool that in the middle of this breakout season, we're seeing from Mikel Bridges, even a guy like Chris Paul, who hasn't been around the team that much, is already taking notice of, of the type of player that he is and the type of person that he is. So love to see that. Um, now we're going to finish up with a new segment. Technically, this is our second time doing this. We didn't do it for Wonder Woman. But uh, we are going to move on to our entertainment section called G-Rated. And this segment is going to be all about entertainment, movies, TV shows. I love talking about movies and TV shows. Like, I love a good binge. Um, we live in a pandemic world now, so I binge a lot more than I used to before, which was already quite a bit as far as TV shows go. So... For G-Rated, I'm just going to pick out something that I've binged lately, something that's popular, whether it's a show or a movie, and talk about it and give it a final score. Because I, I, you know, I love reviewing stuff, but what review is complete without a final score? So that'll be our G-Rating. Uh, today, we're going to go through Cobra Kai because... I was late to jumping on the bandwagon, but I'm so glad that I did. <laughs> I I literally binged all three seasons in like three days this week when I wasn't working. And it can be kind of cheesy, but it's cheesy in like the best, most 80s driven, nostalgic way possible. Um, so for those who haven't seen The Karate Kid, it's set, I don't know, 30 years or whatever beyond the events of that movie. And... You know, Karate Kid is great. It, it's a classic cheesy 80s movie, but it's also very cool as far as like <laughs> if you watch that as a child, your chances are you're going to ask your parents if you can enroll in karate somewhere. And the show is the same way. Honestly, it, it's one of those rare situations where the remake or the sequel or whatever you want to call it brings out the best in the original and vice versa. They just kind of it's a great case of world building in this karate kid cinematic universe that we're building, I guess. But, um, and it's, and it shouldn't be this good, honestly. Like it's basically a show that might as well have been, you know, suggested by Barney Stinson himself. Uh, for those of you who have seen how I met your mother, there's a couple episodes where Barney is talking to Ted about karate kid 
about the hero of the show and he names Johnny Lawrence played by Billy Zapka as the hero of the show and he's the bad guy like he's from the Cobra Kai dojo that's all these like you know elite athletes and you know really star karate kids and (laughs) he's the bad guy but like the show is great because it's an inversion of the movie where Johnny Lawrence is the bad guy and now he's like the anti-hero that you kind of feel bad for and I, I just love the way that it flips the script a little bit and we watch as he kind of tries and, and largely fails to redeem himself um, especially I, I also like that they have you know Ralph Macchio in it too and it goes through his own faults and his kind of prejudice prejudices about his high school bully and his karate rival um, it's a really cool dynamic. And, you know, William Zapka isn't the best actor, but he has like this commanding presence as sort of this tragic figure that you're rooting for him to get his shit together. But also at the same time, like his political incorrectness and his out of date, you know, mentality with the world. It's it's amusing. Like he consistently bags on his own students. Like he gives them nicknames like ass breath and, or no ass face and penis breath. And like, he doesn't know how to use a, he use Facebook. And like, there's this whole sequence where one of his students is helping him take pictures for his Facebook profile. And they're all these like influencer type posts and he like hates them all. Um, but it's really funny stuff. And, and you're always wondering what he's going to do when he's on the screen to either like, make your heart swell or just break it entirely. Cause you, you wind up rooting for a lot of these characters they are very well done. Um, and it does a good job of mapping out their motivations and their character arcs. And, and they all wind up on a collision course. I love shows that are able to, you know, build conflict in natural ways based on what we know about the characters. Like game of Thrones was really good about that. Um, Vikings was really good about that. And this was another one to a lesser degree. You know, there's no, plot machinations like in game of thrones here but it does a good job of setting up conflicts and and putting these characters on collision courses with each other like miguel who is uh johnny lawrence's star student at cobra kai versus his son robbie who is kind of estranged from him and winds up working with danielson his rival and then winds up working for Cobra Kai after Johnny Lawrence loses Cobra Kai. It's, it's a lot of stuff going on, but you know, they've got that conflict. They've got um, Daniel San's daughter, Samantha versus Tori, who becomes this kind of dangerous girl from the Cobra Kai dojo. Like they have really good motivations for wanting to fight each other. And it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's really cool how it's inverted from karate kid. Like the story's natural progression, um, you know, cause Cobra Kai used to be for the strong best athletes. And then when Johnny Lawrence opens it up again for this show, it's mostly his students are mostly a bunch of nerds who are like being bullied and they want to learn how to defend themselves. And then they get really good at karate. And so they become the bullies. Like Hawk is one of my favorite characters. He's this kid that's like bullied because of this thing on his lip, this like deformity on his lip. And <laughs> he winds up feeling empowered by karate so he gets like a back tattoo like this kid and <laughs> this young kid gets a back tattoo and he has this giant red mohawk for the whole show and then he kind of becomes a jerk and this bully um and then by the end of season three he's kind of back on the right course and, and steps away from this new cobra kai that's 
kind of turning back into the old Cobra Kai as far as all these bullies and jerks are, are in it. But, um, you know, it, it's really cool just the progression of that story and, you know, like Johnny Lawrence stepping away from Cobra Kai, the gym that empowered him as a kid to form his own dojo when it gets taken over by his old sensei. And he winds up starting this new dojo in the park because he can't afford like a facility. So they're just out in this public park and <laughs> they're called Eagle Fang, which is students tell him eagles don't have fangs. Like it's just, it's a really good mix of funny, but also like these spine tingling moments. Like the fight scenes are actually pretty solid, just like the original. And it can get fairly intense at some points. Um, at one point, Miguel, his star student, gets kicked over a school railing like on the second floor by his son and like lands hard on the steps and is like paralyzed from from the neck down or the waist down for a little bit. And, you know, we're going to overlook the fact that in a couple of weeks he learned how to walk again from like scratch. Um, we're not going to get into the science of that because that part was super unrealistic. But other than that, like when that kid fell over the rail, I was like, oh, shit, like this show is not messing around. <laughs> like The stakes just got higher. Um, and, you know, and then Sam, Daniel San's daughter, is dealing with like anxiety and panic attacks after she gets cut up by kind of her rival Tori. And there's just a lot of moments like that. But it's also able to poke fun at itself, which is pretty cool because, you know, there are parts where it just points out the fact that like karate is not popular anymore. <laughs> like we are trying to run with an 80s premise and remake it for 2020. And, you know, that in, in, in and of itself is absurd. This show should not be as engrossing as it is, but it really is because it's able to poke fun at itself and the 80s nostalgia, like with the soundtrack, it's got a bunch of 80s hits. Um you know, like the at one point, there's this whole karate brawl that breaks out, and that's when Miguel goes over the railing. But this whole karate brawl breaks out, and they basically ban the tournament, the city council. And they're like, what is it with the Valley's obsession with karate? Like, who does karate anymore? Um, so it's just little moments like that uh, that make it, you know, just the right amount of cheesy, but also cool with the spine tingling moments, like the reunions of former characters or when they're about to fight each other. Like it's just good stuff all around. And where season three leaves off, we're on course for just this epic season four, you know, Johnny and Daniel, these old high school rivals who hated each other. And from each one's perspective kind of ruined the others, either high school life or their upbringing or, or their mentality now um, they're teaming up with their dojos and they're going to face Cobra Kai and Johnny Lawrence's old sensei, this new revamped Cobra Kai that has a bunch of legitimate bullies and, and um, star athletes and whatnot. But they're going to face off. They made a bet basically that whichever one wins the Valley tournament that they got reinstated, the other one has to basically shut down its dojo. So we're on course for some really good stuff in season three. Um, which brings us to my G rating for this show after binge watching all three seasons in three days. Um, I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. I feel like a lot of people are going to come at me for my ratings because I'm a harsher critic. Like I've been ranting and raving about this show and it's only an 8.5 out of 10, but <laughs> I can't give everything a 10. So I love the show. Super nostalgic, super cheesy, but just the right amount. And, uh, 
an 8.5 out of 10 feels like a good starting point. And for reference, last week, I did not give an actual rating for Wonder Woman, but if I had to give it a rating, that would be a 4 out of 10 because it was really bad. Um, that's going to do it for episode 3 of the Fellows of Phoenix podcast. Please be sure to subscribe or write a review if you haven't already. Until next time, I'm your host, Gerald Borgay, signing off.